All right, well, as I've mentioned the last two weeks, there's probably at least two things that everybody here has in common. And the first one is that on some level, we're all seeking Jesus. Maybe some people have been seeking Jesus by following him for decades, and maybe other people are just starting that journey for the first time today of seeking what Jesus has to offer. And the second thing that we all have in common is that on some level, we're all drawn to mountains. Maybe you live here, maybe you're just vacationing, uh, but our church literally just looks out at the mountains because it's something that's so treasured in our community. So we've been using this the last few weeks to talk about how different authors, different writers in the Bible use mountains as images and metaphors to teach us about God. The landscape of mountains has always been inspirational to most people. Let's uh, consider a few quotes that will help us kind of zoom in on this idea. The first one is from a writer named Victoria Erickson, and she says this, Although I deeply love oceans and deserts and other wild landscapes, it's only mountains that beckon me with the sort of painful magnetic pull to walk deeper and deeper into their beauty. They keep me continuously wanting to know more and feel more and see more. And maybe if you live in Big Sky or you're visiting, you really resonate and agree with that quote. I'll skip to the last one by someone named Robert McFarlane, and he says this, Mountains seem to answer an increasing need, an imaginative need. More and more people are discovering a desire for them and a powerful solace in them. Mountains, like all wilderness, challenge our complacent conviction, which is so easy to lapse into that the world has been made by humans for humans. Most of us exist uh, in worlds that are humanly arranged, themed, and controlled. One forgets that there's entire environments which do not respond to the flick of a switch or the twist of a dial, and which have their own rhythms and order of existence. Mountains correct this amnesia by speaking of greater forces than we can possibly invoke. So those are skilled writers who are saying in a really fancy way that mountains inspire us. So this afternoon, I'd like us to just kind of approach this in two ways. In section one, let's just continue to identify some contemporary examples of movies and books and TV shows in ways that skilled people use mountains to inspire others. And then in section two, let's identify three specific places in scripture where the writers use mountains to give us reasons why we can worship God in all situations and in all emotions. So let's jump in section one. Uh, mountains are a metaphor and an image that's used in many of our most popular songs and movies and TV shows. Did anybody here ever read the book The Hobbit when they were a child or have it read to them? So in this book, The Hobbit, there's a team of creatures that go on a great voyage, and their ultimate destination is what? The Lonely Mountain. And this fictional mountain is difficult to get to. It must be entered through a secret door. It's full of treasure. It's guarded by a dragon. And in the beginning of the story, this little creature, Bilbo, he starts off as this homebody. He just takes naps and eats and smokes a pipe all day long. But by the end of this quest, by the end of this adventure, he's now brave, he's courageous, and he's a hero. And that transformation occurs because of his experience with the mountain. The 2018 Academy Award-winning movie Free Solo 
shows actual footage of this climber, Alex Honnold, who scales a 3,000-foot cliff without ropes. And they show him doing it in practice, and they show him doing it in real time. And when the camera zooms out and shows how high he is and how treacherous the climb is, and it zooms out and it shows the beauty of Yosemite National Park, viewers are overcome with the scope of this challenge that this man conceived and accomplished. And anyone who's ever watched that entire documentary has had the realization that humans can do much more than we think that we can. We can accomplish much more, but we need inspiration. And in the case of that movie, the inspiration comes from that mountain. Well, mountains are also a common metaphor in worship music, trying to spur us to praise. There's dozens of lyrics in the most famous worship songs which draw from this this dynamic that mountains inspire us to worship. Maybe you guys grew up singing that hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And one of the lyrics goes, Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Teach me some melodious sonnet. Sung by flaming tongues above, I'll praise the mount I'm fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming love. It's this beautiful idea that God's love is, is substantial as a mountain. Uh, 20 years or so ago, a, a really popular worship song went through churches called Did You Feel the Mountains Tremble? Did you, and the lyrics go, Did you hear the oceans roar when the people rose to sing of Jesus Christ, the risen one? It was just this beautiful, popular chorus about how even the mountains are influenced by the impact of worship. And maybe you guys know that song, Rock of Ages, where the chorus goes, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. It's beautifully saying that even the safety and the security of God is as secure as a mountain. So dating all the way back to the Psalms and within many of our favorite hymns and church songs, is this a reminder that the size and the beauty of mountains are meant to inspire us to praise God. Scripture tells us that even nature praises God. And scripture uses the same landscape to motivate and inspire us to praise God. But let's be honest, maybe you had a hard week. Maybe you recently were hit with some sort of unsettling surprise. Perhaps you're still emerging from a very difficult year and you just don't emotionally feel ready to worship. If any of those are true about you, let's study very briefly three scripture passages which use mountains to advance persuasive reasons why we can all feel good about worshiping God this afternoon. And the sermon's going to be a little bit on the shorter side so that we can wrap up our service actually worshiping for some of these things that Scripture wants to remind us of today. If you would, please open up your Bibles to Psalm 98, verses 8 and 9. And the first reason that the mountains remind us that we can worship today is that God deserves our worship because his righteous judgment is imminent. And let me read for you what it says in Psalm 98, verses 8 to 9. It says, Let the rivers clap their hands, and let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He'll judge the world in righteousness and the people with equity. And Maybe you're not a poem person, so let me just paraphrase that, and let's try to draw out what it is that it's really telling us. It's saying that all the earth can praise God and all the earth can be happy because wickedness 
in all its forms, will eventually face the fair and the right judgment of God. We have to remember this is a poem. It's a metaphor. It's not claiming that mountains are literally clapping and singing. Uh, That's not how poems work. I think what it's saying is that there's glimpses of joy and beauty even in a harsh landscape like a mountain range. Can anybody agree with that? Have you ever gone up on a mountain range and you see the jagged rocks and you think to yourself, how could anything live here and how could anything endure here? But then you also see just a glimpse of beauty and it brings you joy. And so I think what Psalm 98, 8-9 is saying is that the mountains testify that if there's a beauty and a joy in a harsh place like the top of the mountains, we can trust that there's joy and beauty in all places, even in the criminal justice system even in the court system. This psalm is poetically telling us that God deserves our praise because even something as timeless as rivers and mountains have seen God's goodness play out enough times on this globe so that they no longer have to question or doubt it. And sometimes when we're in a tough situation where we don't see evidence that God is bringing righteous judgment, maybe we have to take that perspective of the mountains and the rivers and think to ourselves, if they've seen this play out enough that God eventually brings his right and his good judgment, maybe we need to take the perspective that God will eventually bring his right and good judgment even if we haven't seen it occur in this situation. I came across a sort of famous story and I wasn't able to verify if it's true or not. I think that it is, but I just want to give that heads up that I'm not sure of its origins. But the story goes like this. There was a man in California happily married for many, many years, and his wife left him. His wife cheated on him and started living with somebody else. And a few months later, before the divorce was finalized, the man bought a lottery ticket, which was a winner of several million dollars. But the law in California is 50-50 divorce, and so that as long as you're married, every single asset gets split equally in a divorce. And so the story goes that this woman went to sue her husband because the marriage wasn't fully uh, ended. And she put on the lawsuit that she wanted half the value of that ticket. What would you do if you were the judge? This spouse has been betrayed and abandoned only to come across some good fortune. But the letter of the law is that that other person deserved half of the asset. And it said right there on the, the, uh, the, the form that they wanted half the value of the ticket. So the story goes that the judge awarded half the value of the ticket, which at the time of the divorce was worth 50 cents because the ticket hadn't yet been awarded out with the winning lottery numbers, right? And though I don't like to delight in anybody's misery, what's what's uplifting about that story is that judge found a way to be fair and good without breaking the constraints of the law. And so what Psalm 98, 8-9 is telling us is that though we don't always have a solution as to how God is going to intercede, He's good and He's fair and His judgment is imminent. And it might not be apparent now, but any situation that you're going through, you can praise God and you can go through your day with peace, knowing that God is good and fair and that He's ultimately going to bring justice to that situation, being consistent with who He is. So I'll just ask you guys to ask these questions to yourself internally. Did somebody betray you? 
Did somebody cheat you? Did someone bully you or rob you of your self-worth? Psalm 98, 8-9 is telling us that we can find peace in unresolved situations because of the certainty that God will act and judge the situation or that person with goodness and fairness. And the mountains and the rivers have seen that play out enough times that they consistently have joy and praise God. And that image is trying to tell us that we can worship because God is good and fair and his judgment is imminent. Isaiah 44, 23 tells us another reason why the mountains remind us that we can always praise. It says, God deserves our worship because he is the inventor and he is the source of redemption. So if you would please turn to Isaiah 44, 23. It's almost exactly halfway through your Bibles. And Isaiah 44, 23 says this. Sing for joy, heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth, because uh, you earth beneath, and burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and you trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and he displays his glory in Israel. And that, I think, took me a little bit to figure out what it was really trying to say. It's saying that all the earth can praise and be happy because God offers the same redemption to each one of us that he demonstrated to Jacob. This guy in the Old Testament who becomes Israel. So let's take a quick focus in on the life of Jacob because there's something essential about that story to all of our stories 4,000 years later. The Old Testament is filled with significant people who really accomplished great things. Abraham was a great founder. He founded a family and a nation. Noah was a great explorer. He explored the earth and then he settled Everything started all over. Joseph governed an entire empire, and Moses was a general who took on Egypt. But the man that God chooses to carry the name of Israel is this guy Jacob. Do you guys know anything about Jacob? You probably haven't heard a lot of sermons and Sunday school lessons about him because he's a terrible person. Jacob's a con man. Jacob's a scoundrel. He cheated his brother. He manipulated his father. He stole from his father-in-law. He chose the wrong wife. And he repeated some of these mistakes multiple times. But God chose Jacob as the one to be renamed Israel. Just like it talks about here in Isaiah 44, 23. And the reason why this story is so significant is because it's really the essence of Christianity. Even though it's in the Old Testament, it's really the essence of all who follow God. So this guy, the Hebrew name for Jacob, most Hebrew names actually have a, a meaning to them. And the nickname or the literal translation of Jacob is he who acts crookedly. So God chooses this person whose name is he who acts crookedly. And every single story along the way, he's doing the wrong thing. He's doing the manipulative thing. He's stealing and he's cheating. And then God in Genesis 32 wrestles him through the night. I'm sure you've heard that story. His hip is broken. I'm sure we've got some people here today who walk with the Lord with a broken hip, right? And, uh, and then Jacob is given the name Israel. And in Hebrew, Israel means he who wrestles or leans in to God. Isn't that all of our stories? At one time, we acted crookedly. 
At one, times we, at one time we manipulated most things for our own self-interest. But then after meeting God, we're made new. And our new identity is one who leans into God. It tells us that his, his hip is broken and for the rest of his life he walks with a crutch. But that's when he gets his new name. And, and, and then everyone in the Old Testament who follows God is known as Israel, right? Israelites. Because God's people are meant to be reformed con men and con women who have been made new. And they now lean into God and they now walk with a limp because they, they now find their new identity and their strength in God. Unfortunately, somewhere in the 4,000 years since, we make the mistake that we have to be great before God. We have to have our act together to really make God proud. But nothing's changed. He still is asking us to lean on Him, to walk with a limp, and to go in front of a watching world and let them know that our strength comes from leaning on God. So the second way that the mountains inspire us to worship is that they sing out in praise of God who invented and powers this process of redemption. God doesn't call people who are powerful in their own strength. God calls those who want to be remade and renewed and, and display God as their strength. And uh, what's so beautiful here about Isaiah 44:23 is it's reminding us it's just a poem, it's just a metaphor, but it's saying the mountains praise at the redemption that God has brought Jacob, turning him in to Israel. If you guys need redemption, if you guys have found redemption, the next time you look out at a mountain, I just want you to know how the writer of Isaiah is combining those things together. That mountain is a reminder that your strength comes from the redemption that God has brought you, just like he did with Jacob. And the final thing that I want to uh, draw out before we end with praise is this. The third way that the mountains teach us that uh, we can worship no matter how we're feeling and no matter what we're thinking is that God deserves our worship because his love and his kindness for his people are everlasting. Let me say that one time because I'm sure there's many people here this afternoon that need that reminder. God can be praised and worshipped because his love and his kindness for us doesn't get extinguished. It doesn't run out. Would you guys turn with me to one last place, Isaiah 54.10. And Isaiah 54.10 says this, Though the mountains will be shaken and the hills will be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So God is saying here to paraphrase that his love and his kindness and his favor on those who follow him, it endures longer than anything else that's around us. But that's a little bit of a thinker, okay? It makes sense on the surface. But if it's saying that God's love and kindness lasts even longer than the mountains, like maybe that means, geologically speaking, that God's love and kindness is going to last for another 5,000 years. But like I'm going to live to be 98 tops. So what good does that do for me if that's the interpretation of that image? Why do I need God's love and favor to last forever if I'm not necessarily going to last forever here? And so I think that sometimes we overthink poetry, but sometimes we need to go a little bit deeper to wrestle with what it was that was trying to be communicated. And I think Isaiah 54.10 is advancing something that's really personal. I think Isaiah 54.10 is telling us that God's kindness 
and love and favor is going to outlast the things in your life that you've made into a mountain. One of my favorite writers is this guy named Brennan Manning. He was born in the Depression era of New York City. He joined the Marines. He fought in the Korean War. He was searching for an identity, and he found it as a Franciscan priest. And this guy, Brennan Manning, loved being a priest and helping people and just all the honor that comes with being a religious guide and shepherd and mentor. And then he got fired for being an alcoholic. He lost everything that he had built his identity on. And he suffered through depression for many years. He emerged from that with a deep understanding of grace. He emerged from that valley with an understanding that God loves us regardless of our failure. And God had just as much purpose and a voice for him after being a disgraced and I guess it's called defrocked priest. He went on to write a couple books that became inspirational bestsellers. He became more of a guide and an encouragement and a shepherd after his firing and everything that he lost than he ever had at the height of that identity that he had first found. Here's just three quick quotes from Brendan Manning. First one is this, My deepest awareness of myself is that I'm deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Another quote is, To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark side. In admitting my shadow side and my sin, I learn who I am and I remember what God's grace really means. The third quote is this, God not only loves me as I am, but he also knows me as I really am. And because he really knows me for the good and the bad, I don't have to apply spiritual cosmetics to make myself presentable to him. I can accept ownership of my poverty and my powerlessness and my neediness. Those are three beautiful quotes that no priest or pastor or person who hasn't tasted bitter failure can ever fully grasp, right? But when he lost the mountain of his identity and saw that God still loved him and had kindness and favor for him, then Isaiah 54.10 became true in his life. God's kindness and favor lasted even longer than the mountains that he had created. There's probably some people here this afternoon that have created some sort of mountain in their life, be it a relationship, be it a career, be it some sort of skill that they were better at than anybody else. But somewhere along the way, as they climbed that mountain, they they, they discovered it wasn't worth it or it didn't fulfill them as much as they had hoped that it would. The good news of Isaiah 54.10 is that God's love and kindness and favor on your life exists even after you've discovered that that mountain that you created of identity wasn't enough, even after you failed in that way, God's kindness and love endures, and it's still there for you. He still has a plan for you. He still has a voice for you. He still has a calling for you. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and conclude our service with the final two or three songs. As they do, I encourage you guys to look out the window at Lone Peak. And as you worship and as you stare at that mountain, I hope that that dynamic terrain reminds you that we have a dynamic God. 
I hope you remember the scripture that tells us the mountains have endured long enough to recognize that God's good and fair judgment, it always comes. And if you're waiting for that judgment to come, you can trust that it will. I hope the mountains remind you that God continues to offer delight in redemption. God doesn't delight when you get everything perfect. He delights in you understanding that he's brought redemption and we can live in his grace. And finally, the mountain reminds us, the mountain worships when it reminds us that, that, that God's kindness endures even longer than anything that we've created in our lives. I hope at least one of those three scripture passages has kind of stirred your heart and brought a smile to your face that we can worship God for those characteristics that are always true even when our heart just isn't quite in it, even when we don't feel like it. So let's think about that truth of who God is and what he does as we wrap up with these final songs.